All right. Welcome back to the Bread and Butter Podcast. My name is Brecklin. I am your host. Today I'm here with a very special guest, Alina Kay. Some of you may know her from Instagram, but just a quick how I found Alina. Um, she has a platform right now as just a volunteer in Ukraine right now. She's working in a Ukraine orphanage. And as we all know, Ukraine is it's it's going through it right now. So I am we're just so privileged right now to have Alina on to tell us a little bit about what she's doing and who she is. So before we kind of jump into what you're doing, tell us just a little bit about who you are. I know a little bit, I know you're a Swifty, just a couple things, but yeah, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah. So like you said, my name's Alina Kay. I am 28 years old. I actually turned 29 next week. Feels weird. Be in my late 20s. Thank you. Uh, mixed feelings about it. But yeah, I originally got a degree in marketing, um, English literature. Uh, might seem kind of confusing that I now volunteer in an orphanage, but it actually has served me really well in the field of advocacy um, and be- being able to build a platform around what I do. Um, so ironically, that all worked out for me. Uh, I am a Christian. I'm motivated by my faith. I have traveled to 32 countries, um, travel, seeing the world, cultural uh, interaction and immersion is really important to me and just something I thoroughly enjoy. Um, So it's been a priority for me. But I have now lived in Ukraine and called it home for almost a year and a half, uh, which has felt like a lifetime, but also a blink of an eye. Um, Time's just funny that way. So yeah, that's me. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I was going to say, I was like, I feel like she's got to have some kind of English writing, marketing background because you're, when you say it like helps in advocacy, your stuff is very compelling and very just beautiful to read and to process. So when did you kind of move to Ukraine? Like what did that decision look like? And actually where kind of in Ukraine's invasion has that kind of aligned? Yeah, so I first visited Ukraine. It was not on my radar at all. Like, knew it existed as a country, and that was about the extent of my Ukrainian knowledge. Um, Back in 2018, when I first visited there in the spring of 2018, I was doing a larger mission trip um, called the World Race. It's uh, was structured. It used to be structured as going to 11 countries in 11 months. You get plugged in with different um, like humanitarian aid uh, ministries, different things like that in different countries. Um, so it was more of like an exposure type trip to uh, what's going on around the world. So I was on that trip, went to Ukraine. It was one of our slotted countries. Again, didn't really know much about it. Uh, but we got partnered, the team that I was with got partnered with uh, a ministry called Shade for Children uh, here in Ukraine that works with vulnerable and orphan children. And it was done in a way, I'd worked in the context of, of orphan care before, um, but it was done in a way of advocacy and just such intentionality and care in a way I hadn't seen seen before. So it was really compelling to me. It was really intriguing and then just the country itself um really pulled me in i I loved the the mixture of cultures and um the just the development of uh society here in post-soviet era and um knowing how hard they had fought for everything they had so back in 2018 the context from which i live in now was just 
really um, starting to take root. Uh, visited, came back again in 2021, uh, and it was during that trip that I had made the decision that I was going to move here full time. I had kind of had that in the background of my mind since my initial trip in 2018, uh, but didn't know what that would look like, didn't know how that would look like. Um, but uh, in 2021, there was already the buildup of Russian troops on the border, um, on the eastern border of Ukraine. So even back then, we were like watching it really closely. I was getting updates from like the State Department and things like that in the U.S. about what that could mean and the potential risk and things like that back in spring of 2021. And so uh, was not ignorant to the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, uh, was not ignorant to the potential of aggression even back then. Uh, I spent three months here in Ukraine, um, a lot of that going towards kind of planning what it would look like to move here, how I could get plugged in uh, with orphan care and mm -hmm. things like that, building relationships, all that good stuff. Went back to the States for six months to plan, prepare, fundraise, uh, study. I did so much research on orphan care, best practices, trauma care, all that good stuff. And so I spent six months in the United States doing that. And then officially moved uh, to Ukraine January 31st, 2022. Um, so a full 23 days before the full-scale invasion started. Yeah, I was going to say. Leading up to me moving here, I, so when I was still in the States, uh, I was already getting the emails of like the do not travel emails from the United States State Department. Um, there was like all the warnings. Everyone was already telling their citizens to get out. Uh, and so... There was just a lot of discussion and confusion from um, other people as to why I was still planning my move. I was like on Instagram and TikTok making these videos of like, I'm moving to Ukraine in two weeks. Like, here's what I'm taking with me. And everyone's like, she's insane. <laughs> no, they're like, oh, <laughs> no one knew. No one understood it. But there was like multiple factors as to why I still made the move here. Um, a, a big one being the fact that where I moved to and where I had intended to move to the entire time is on the western side of Ukraine. Um, so a significant distance from the border with Russia. And so a significant distance from where at that time there was the buildup of troops on the border. Um, so there was th this uh, level of safety, uh, an illusion of safety that I had, you know, mm -hmm. coming in, um, being in the Western uh, region of Ukraine. And I also knew, like, the, the reason I was going to begin with was to serve these children who were the most vulnerable. And uh, the, a war, an invasion, even just, like, the political tension that was going on during that time before the full-scale invasion even started, uh, just caused all the more reason that these kids needed greater advocacy. And so I, it just made sense to like kind of go into that, knowing that the, the need was going to be even greater if the war did get started. Uh, and that has been proven time and time again since then. Uh, so yeah, 23 days uh, before the full sky invasion, we moved here about 11 days before it started. I moved into my apartment which was such a blessing because um, because I live in the West, housing went like absolutely crazy in this mm -hmm. part of the country because everyone was moving out of the East and coming West. And so it was like nearly impossible to find an apartment um, after the full-scale invasion started. And it's also actually still pretty difficult. Um, housing is pretty difficult here right now. Uh, but I was just so, so fortunate to have moved into my apartment, gotten settled, um, 
and then you know the world flipped on its head so yeah yeah so before we kind of jump into when like you said the world did flip on its head I would love to kind of dive in a little bit to kind of your Christian roots and how that has affected just I just feel like your whole life is dedicated to serving these kids and it's obviously been like years in the making Mm -hmm. so if you have like a core mantra or kind of like a like this is why I do what I do I would love for you to speak to that because I think that's just inspiring and compelling and something that people need to hear more of sure yeah I think the concept of orphan care and just children in general uh is I feel like Christians feel so tied to it because there's such a heavy call uh, to care for the orphan, you know, care for the widow and the orphan throughout scripture, right? Our mm-hmm. our foundation of faith is so built on that. Um, but something else I've found through this journey is that that is like a human, it's actually just not just a Christian experience, it's a human experience, this like draw mm-hmm. to really fight for the most vulnerable. Uh, so I do think that it is a, um, a, a cause, like a calling that uh, people like kind of across uh, demographics can do it. Uh, but yeah, for me, of course, like my faith, my relationship with God is like my top priority. And so everything, every decision I make, every um, like action I take is done through that filter. It's done through a filter of prayer, a filter of discernment, um, my relationship with Holy Spirit. And my walk in faith is, is by no means, um, clear cut or, or simple. Uh, I didn't, I didn't always have this like unwavering faith and I still, you know, (laughs) it has been tested and tried many, many times, especially this year. Uh, but I do have the very fortunate, um, experience of having a foundational background in the church. I grew up in a Bible Baptist church um, in the Midwest. Uh, some people have context for what that means and some people maybe will just leave it up to their imaginations, but it's very, very fundamental, um, very conservative. And uh, it did <laughs> provide me with a very uh, thorough understanding and foundation in scripture, which I'm so thankful for. It has been um, like a, a rock, a cornerstone in the faith I've been able to build, build on mm-hmm. top of that, uh, as an adult. So I'm very thankful for the foundation I have in the church, um, in scripture. Uh, but also in that context, there was a lot, um, around my relationship with God that was just told to me of like how it should be and not really, um, explored as in my own journey or like my own, um, like my own discovery of that relationship. It was more of just like handed to me of like, this is what it should look like. And this is what it should feel like. And this is what it should be like. And you just like, as a kid, you just like take that and receive that. And you're like, okay, like everyone I know and trust is telling me that this is what it should be like, feel like, and um, you know, be in my life, the, the role that my faith should play and the way I should talk about it and the way I should interact with it. And so that was kind of handed to me. And for a lot of years, I just like, I took it, I received it. I was like, okay, this is what faith is. And this is how I operate out of it. Um, but I, I could tell even pretty early on um, that that part of it kind of felt like a production for me. And as a kid, I was, I was a theater kid when I was young. So be, putting on a production was yeah. easy for me. I was like, okay, these are the lines. This is what I say. This is how I act. Um, I can do that. I can, I can put on that performance. Yeah. Um, 
but as I got older, I started uh, seeing through some of the um, the miss. I started seeing through what was said versus what was done uh, in my church context. Um, a lot of times the words that I was hearing from people were not matching their mm-hmm. actions. And I was very sensitive to that as a kid and still am. Um, I like empathy is on strengths finder. I don't know if you ever do strengths finder. Empathy is my top strength. So I've always been very in tune, um, with, uh, like an emotional environment mm-hmm. around me. And so I started kind of picking up that there was a disconnect on that. So, uh, quietly in my own time, in my own mind, in my own thoughts, I early on started kind of um, wondering and questioning uh, who God was, what his role was in my life. Um, I had some like pretty traumatic, big changes in my life happen around the age eight years old, eight, nine years old. And, um, you know, one of those things that I was served in faith was, well, we have to pray about this. And to me, as a child, that just didn't, like, I was like, okay, like, we we can Mm -hmm. pray about it, but it's like, shouldn't there be actions that follow prayer? Uh, And that felt like such a miss, um, just such a miss for me. Um, I, uh, the the church around me, the, the adults in my life of like, I felt like all we did was pray, but there was no actions being taken to like rectify um, or uh, like be like be the Christian, be the faith, be the church that we were always talking about. Um, so I think that was kind of the foundation mm-hmm. for me of uh, like what led to me kind of deconstructing my faith later on through co- my college years, um, really questioning, you know, how much of this was just what I garbled up as a child of, you know, my, through my innocence, through my naivety, through my vulnerability. Um, and what if this is like true foundation? What if this is like true experience? Uh, so through my college Mm -hmm. years, I went through like the complete cycle of like completely surrendering my faith, kind of taking my hands off of it. Um, never completely like denouncing that it wasn't true or real, but just like not interacting with it at all. Uh, I wanted to like see the world through a different lens and more specifically one that wasn't like already framed up for me. So I was doing a lot of traveling. I was meeting a lot of people. I was experiencing different cultures and things like that and just had kind of taken my hands off of it. And I was like, okay, like, you know, if you're real, you're real. Uh, Like at this point, I don't really care that much and I don't really want it. I don't want to really want to explore it. Uh, but I had come back, I studied abroad for a semester in the Netherlands and, you know, did all the things that I thought you're supposed to do while you studied abroad. I traveled Europe. I went to Paris. I went to, uh, London and Dublin and all the places, right. Did all the things. And I came home, I came back to the States and I was so unfulfilled. I felt just so unfulfilled. I was like, okay, this is like, I did the thing. Like I did the thing that I've always said I wanted to do. I did the thing everyone told me I was supposed to do in order to like experience the world and find myself and, you know, know what I care about and all the things I did it. And I came home and I just like, it wasn't it. And I was like, like I had Mm -hmm. a great time, but like, why, why am I still feeling such like an emptiness, like an emptiness in who I am? Uh, and that was, that was kind of when there was like this whispering of like reminding me what I was missing, reminding me of the God of the universe, reminding me of this relationship I once had, this scripture I once studied. Um, 
and it was kind of like this like obvious right in front of you but I'm gonna still ignore it like here's the answer like here is why these things of the world were not fulfilling you so that was 2015 2015 I came back from studying abroad had this kind of identity crisis um, where I was like, okay, I thought this was the, what I was supposed to be doing to find myself, to find what I care about. It wasn't it. Came home, ended up changing my major because that's what every college student does when they have an identity crisis. So I went into college as an education major. I wanted to be an English teacher, yeah. um, came home, had an yeah. identity crisis, was like, I don't think I want to teach English anymore, uh, but I don't know what I want to do. So the easiest path to, for me to get to graduation was to study marketing kept my English literature because I was pretty much already done with that part. Um, and it was just like, this seems like a practical skill for someone who has no idea what they want to do with their life. And so <laughs> I did it and, you know, finished up the courses. But <laughs> over the course of that, like the main thing that happened to me, yeah, I got a degree and it was great. And it's been very useful. Uh, but what happened to me is like, I didn't just like rest in that like crisis of, um, like, who am I? I like really started digging in and these like scriptures that I had memorized as a child started popping back up. I started seeing these like evidence of my in my life of like divine intervention and ways that I had been protected or um, like ways that my heart had been softened and things like that. And so um, it was I had a pretty other another I had another pretty traumatic event happen in my life in the beginning of 2016. And like most people, traumatic events can be real catalysts in your life. And so uh, my cousin Tyler uh, passed away. Um, he was just a handful of years older mm -hmm. than me and he was one of my best friends uh, in the whole world. And we lost him in January of 2016. And uh, at that point, God had already kind of started poking and prodding at me to open my eyes to, to recognize, to remember, um, what I had had in faith. And then when I lost him, uh, mm -hmm. I went through kind of a numb period of uh, the perspective of like, I don't really care. <laughs> like, what are we doing? I don't really care. I, mm -hmm. you know, just like get me through life, just wake up, go to work, go to school, come home. Um, mm -hmm. and then there was a, a night I can remember it almost perfectly. It was in February. So I don't know, maybe like five weeks after we had lost him and it was thunderstorming. I had just come home. I was bartending at the time. I had just come home. It was maybe 2 AM, just come home from a shift and it was thunderstorming, lightning, um, pouring. And I had, I was getting my things together to get ready to run into my apartment, run through the rain or whatever. And everything just stopped. Like something like all the numbness that I had been just like blocking out uh the numbness I'd been using to block out the the pain the questions the confusion all the things uh like slowly just kind of eased away and I felt heard so clearly just like this presence mm -hmm. of God uh it was a a relationship like a a closeness and intimacy mm -hmm. that I had not experienced in my childhood faith uh, it was, it was soft, it was gentle, but it was evident. I was, I was confident of the experience that I was having. And I just sat in my car and I just wept, uh, as the rain was pouring outside, as lightning mm -hmm. and thunderstruck, it was just, there was this 
juxtaposition of this like powerful God outside my car and then like the gentleness and intimacy of him inside my car. Um, and I don't know how long I sat out there. It was quite a while. Uh, eventually get, get into my apartment and I pull out my Bible for like the first time and I don't even know how long uh, and just slowly start reading it. And it, it wasn't just like this all of a sudden on fire for God again, like let me conquer the world for the kingdom of God. It wasn't anything like that. I just, I started opening my Bible. I started praying. I started seeking out a church again. Um, started just like casually talking about my faith with my friends um, and things like that. And it just, it slowly built back up to a faith that was mine. It wasn't anything that was handed to me. Um, I did have, of course, foundation of who God was and, and understanding scripture and interpreting it and, and things. But this in, this new intimacy, this new relationship, um, it was it was fully mine and it was fully new and it was a, a completely new thing to discover. And so I, yeah, I just leaned into that and um, my life like immediately kind of took a 180. I went from feeling a lot of depression and anxiety um, to still struggling with that, but feeling like there was hope at the end of the tunnel of it. And I didn't have to be that way forever. Uh, and I was still, you know, going through that identity crisis of like, who do you want to be when you grow up? And that was when I had found out about the trip, the world race. I had heard, well, I'd heard about it before. Um, and, but that was like, it, it like really implanted at that point that this would be a good move, um, for me, a good way for me to, like understand what the problems of the world were, understand what my role of that could be. Cause like I said, I always had this like super empathetic heart um, of wanting to make an impact, wanting to um, care for people uh, and kind of coming back into that relationship with direction. Sometimes that feels so crippling of like, Oh, I have so many options. Like, where do I go? Um, but in that, in that season, it really just felt like so many possibilities. It's like, okay, I'm about to graduate college. I'm about to have my degree. Um, I don't have a clear path forward. I don't have like a clear career I'm supposed to go on. Um, But I have a passion and I have like eagerness. I have energy, like let's do something. Um, And so that's really what was kind of the catalyst of getting me to go on this trip. Going on that trip led me to understand the orphan crisis. Uh, It awakened this... um, this heart, this calling, this passion to serve vulnerable children. Uh, I think a lot of that does stem through my own vulnerability that I had as a child and the lack lack of advocacy I had when things at home were kind of falling apart. Uh, I wouldn't have recognized that though. I don't even think I would have articulated it as that until I was already working in it. Uh, Because, you know, the pieces of our lives we'll never see how they fully all fit together but it is really in this hindsight when you finally get to look back and see how far you've come that you're like oh this started way back then like it wasn't just oh I moved here in 2022 it was oh like God started working on my heart and that and then I like was disappointed or you know had a had a loss here and then that shaped me in this way and then I was open to his calling here and and then one plus one equals two and now I live in Ukraine yeah that's amazing that's honestly like an incredible story and I think I think one thing that resonated with me was you know as a child raised in religion I think it's very common to 
you know, kind of experience some pain as you start to see the nuances and mm-hmm. maybe things aren't quite what you thought they were, or maybe that you, you see them differently or you want to own them for yourself in a different way. And I just love how you've kind of channeled, you know, your own experience of kind of owning your faith and your spirituality into like such a beautiful way of life. I just feel like you, I just, I think often in this time, I see a lot of adults who may have been raised in religion, may not have, um, who may have denounced for their own personal reasons, no shade whatsoever. Um, but the ownership isn't always there. And I think that's something that I really admire is your ownership of your journey and, and your spirituality. And I think that's such a powerful thing. And like you said, such a powerful catalyst to be like, okay, you know, I have had these painful things. I have had these questions and these doubts and these fears. And like, now what, like, what am Uh I going to do about it? And Uh I just think that's just beautiful and inspiring. So looking forward, so you've moved to Ukraine. You're, I want to say you said like 11 days out. What was your first experience? I imagine that like, you probably weren't. How do you even prepare for something like that? What was that like? You know, growing up in the Midwest of America, no one prepares you for war. <laughs> like, yeah, it just was not anything that was on my radar. Uh, and like you said, like, we all have our own battles. Like, we all have our own losses and traumas. And um, I think, like, to add to what you were saying about people's relationship with their their religion and their faith it really does kind kind of come down in adulthood to what you're willing to own um and what you're wanting to stay a victim to and so as a child I I mean I work in child advocacy as a child we are so vulnerable uh to the decisions of the adults in our lives to the circumstances around us and that is impactful and that shapes us for sure. There is no doubt about that. I, I see it every single day and I've seen it in my own life. Uh, but we get to a point when we're no longer those kids and we do advocate for ourselves and we do get to step up. And I think that really is um, the difference. And this can happen. This can happen when you're 18. This can happen when you're 55. Like it doesn't really matter your age. But at some point we get the opportunity to make a decision of whether or not we're going to uh, own the journey that we had and, and be able to shape it and take that privilege to shape how we move forward. Um, or if we're going to remain a victim to the circumstances that we had that were outside of our control. Uh, mm. And so I think that journey um, and I like, I don't really have a recipe for how I reached that. It was, it was the grace of God and, um, a stubbornness to not end up like others I had seen, um, in my family, outside my family. Uh, I, but it was, it was that decision that I had made to, to take the circumstances, to take what I had learned through my vulnerability as a child and channel that to be able to face the world. Um, So when it comes to me talking about like, yeah, I moved to Ukraine and a war started, that's insane. Like no one prepares you for that. Nothing in your life prepares you for that. But at the same time, like everyone has like the most insane things that happen to them that you feel entirely unprepared for. And the only way that you can actually show up to those things well is to, uh, you know, own what's in your control, release what's not in your control, and show up the best that you can in the 
way that you can and just release and surrender the rest. Uh, And whether that's, I mean, whether you're facing an illness or a loss or a massive transition or a traumatic experience, uh, that's as simple as that and as unsimple as it is. I know it's incredibly complex, but um, we boil it down to like what's in your control and what's out of your control, being able to recognize that, being able to release what's out of your control, being able to take ownership with what's in your control. I think it's the way that we survive. Again, I'm only 28 years old, so I don't have it all figured out, but that's how I've survived thus far. And um, yeah, I've had a wild ride and I'm I'm still here. I'm still carrying my faith. I'm still showing up and I haven't given up on that we can have a better world and that we can do better as people. So, um, so far it's working, but I'll have to report back later on, see if it sticks. Amazing. So we, so just, I was, just to give you kind of a context of what I know of Ukraine, which is not much. So I'm grateful that you're here. I graduated in journalism and there was a period of time where we just as a journalism class were able to, I think, FaceTime or Skype a group of journalism students in Ukraine. And, you know, here in the U.S., if you're a journalism major, it's like, oh, like, yeah, you were an English kid. Like, yeah, you want to do something with it? Like, oh, that's fun. Like, that's cute. Like, you know, you'll probably end up in a marketing job, right? Like, you'll do social media or something. And, you know, talking to these journalism students, though, in Ukraine, it was extremely impactful because they were not there to play games. Mm -hmm. They knew that their lives were on the line a lot Mm -hmm. of the time. You know, they were telling us, you know, here in the U.S., it's, it's just so, so different. And they were telling us things like, yeah, like, journalists go missing all the time like Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a frightening place you know we do this because we do want to advocate for real change Mm -hmm. and we want to report on what's really going on and I just will never forget that because I was just like oh my word like I they're living with such intentionality and bravery and you know if I can ever channel a small sliver of that I want to Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I found your page I was like you know what she is out there doing it like she's reporting like I I generally feel like you are reporting on a time in history that people will look back on and and you know and more importantly rather than looking back on it what can we do going forward you know like what can we do with the knowledge that we have of what's happening right now Mm -hmm. to impact you know these children Um, so I would love for you to kind of dive in how this invasion has affected the kids that you work with because I don't think that the media is covering it as heavily Um, which is just kind of, unfortunately, how the cookie crumbles when it comes Mm -hmm. to journalism. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I would love for you to dive in how how these kids have been affected. Yeah, I think it's, I love that you talk about the comparison between the experience in the U.S. versus the experience here when it comes to journalism, because I think like what you nailed there is that there's like a different level of risk, like there's a different Mm -hmm. level of what's on the line uh, for journalism here in Ukraine, especially right now. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand when they're trying to understand a country like Ukraine, just to begin with, is that Ukraine is operating and has been operating on a completely different level uh, of risk than the United States has. And so just like back up 
Ukraine has only had its independence since 1991. So that's like fairly older than I am. So fairly more than my lifetime um, has Ukraine had its independence. And the regime that Ukraine gained its independence from is an incredibly, was an incredibly corrupt, a incredibly controlling um, and an incredibly broken system. And so how Ukraine has attempted to recover um, through democracy, through rebuilding, through um, restructuring of their country, their government and everything, um, it's just also young. So it's important to understand that um, when you're trying to understand like the context of where we're at now. So 1991, they gained independence. Um, In 2014 is really when uh, like the aggression and the infiltration of uh, Russian influence in Ukraine um, was, it wasn't when it was started back up because it, it, there had been uh, corruption from and Ukraine or Russian influence in Ukraine before that, but it had started being fought back against by the Ukrainian people. So it was like the Ukrainian people stood up and was like, no, no, no. Like we are a country, we are independent. We, we want a democracy. Like we want to be able to fight for our freedom. And I'm sure that was probably what you were hearing in the voices of like the young Ukrainians that you got to speak with is like, we have something to fight for. And it's like, it is still a battle. And that was, you know, in 2014, we really saw that come to light. Um, I highly recommend if anyone wants to understand more about like how um, Ukrainians have fought for their freedom in like recent history. There's a documentary. It's on Netflix. It's called Winter on Fire. Oh um, yes, yes, yeah, fabulously well done documentary. It is incredibly difficult to watch. Um, yeah. There's a lot of graphic imagery in there that is like it's real. It's real footage. Um, so I do kind of put that put that pre note in there, but um, it is very informative of to what was going on in 2014. And so now we flash forward to today. Um, me working with, so I work with vulnerable at risk um, and orphaned children in Ukraine. And so the Ukrainian system is structured still um, as an institutionalized system. So in the United States, we have the foster care system. So vulnerable um, children, um, children without parental or guardianship protection within their family get placed into the foster care system, ideally placed in a foster home. I know that is also not a perfect system, Uh, but these children are getting placed into ideally safe environments in a home setting. In Ukraine, if that same situation happens, these children get placed into institutions. So we're talking anywhere from 100 to 300, 400 children under one roof. uh, Being like, imagine if you like took your preschooler to like the local high school and like that was the environment they had to be raised in it's like it's rooms with one or two caregivers per group uh you know a room full of they have a room full of beds and then they have a, a room that they live in and like that is their world so it's this institutionalized care uh that is left over. So this system is left over from Soviet era processes, right? So Mm -hmm. Soviet era um, procedures that were started. And um, that is still what we see today in Ukraine. And the way that the full scale invasion that's happening right now is mostly affecting these types of kids. Well, first, we need to talk about all the kids that have been displaced uh, because of this war. I mean, we're talking countless 
orphanages, institutions, hospitals that have been either had to be evacuated or now completely destroyed. So we have hundreds, probably thousands of children that are internally displaced or now living in other countries because where they called home is now under Russian occupation. So that's, that's like the first, like really tangible, evident way of, you know, an impact, right? But we also have to talk about the way that this is impacting the system because Ukraine is now at war um, with a country that is much bigger than them and mm-hmm. uh, previously seen as much more powerful than them, right? Uh, Ukraine as a country did not have the resources to enter into a war like this. This is why Western support of Ukraine has been incredibly vital and is the reason that Ukraine is still able to fight this war. Uh, and when I'm talking resources, I'm talking money, a lot of it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, social policy, so social um, systems within Ukraine have had to be depleted to fund the war, which yeah. means the social budgets that fund these institutions are being depleted in order to fight a war. Yeah. And some people might ask the question of like, oh, well, how can you take you know, money from the kids. Well, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if you can feed the kids if they're getting bombed. So it's yeah. like, you got to have a level of priority when it comes to like hierarchy of needs. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, like in a lot of situations, it is that life or death situation. Um, and so they're trying to protect the sanctity of their borders uh, and that is depleting social resources, right? So we're seeing that ramification. Thankfully, again, Western support has really stepped up and there has been you know, a lot of humanitarian aid, um, a lot of foundations started, a lot of ministries started uh, that are helping kind of fill in the gaps of the financial resources to at least take care of these kids. But in doing that, we also are backpedaling multiple steps when it comes to reform within this broken Soviet era process and system for these kids. So Mm -hmm. in 2016, there was this huge movement made in Ukraine um, of of talking about deinstitutionalizing children. So, you know, starting initiatives that are going to close down orphanages and get kids into foster families, small group homes advocate for adoption, advocate for reunification so that these kids were being raised in families and not in institutions because it is worldwide known that institution is not in the best interest of the children. Like there are studies after studies after studies by UNICEF, by the UN, um, by so many organizations that know that this isn't the best for the children. So Ukraine started this process back in 2016. But we have to remember how young this country is, how young the democracy is. And so things like this are going to take time and high accountability. Fast forward to today, that government is now trying to maintain its borders and therefore mm-hmm. priority of reform within this very broken system, just it, it's it's not there. And so now it's it's going to fall on those of us who work in the like nonprofit, um, the uh, NGO, the foundation sector to really try mm-hmm. to step in and bring some other solutions to the issue um, while the government of Ukraine is like incredibly occupied. I don't yeah. want to say that by like completely taking out responsibility of the Ukrainian government. I have a lot of criticism for the way that this system has been handled and the lack of reform that has happened thus far. Uh, but you also like you have to understand um like the context of where the Ukrainian government is in having war in their borders, invasion Mm -hmm. in their borders right now. Uh, So yeah, so these kids are basically getting deprived of 
their opportunity for reform in the system, their opportunity of being raised in a family. And like you might say, okay, well, anyway, that's a five, 10 year goal of to get this full reform. Yes, but like we have children there now. We have children there yeah. now who are losing their childhood, who are forming disabilities because of their institutionalization. Like this is life and death for these children. And yeah. so it's, it, it's such a complex issue. Yeah. And I could talk about like the multifaceted layers of it all day long. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, we are in an incredibly tough position for those of us who have, are advocating for reform in the system um, because of this war. And I don't truly see us being able to have any true reform um, until the war is over. But we, we still fight during, during this time, get as much attention, talk about it loud enough, um, put up as many you know, temporary solutions as we can find. Uh, until that day comes that we can like really bring some transformation for these kids um, and the care that they're provided. Yeah. So just because I think it's so far removed from so many people's reality or their even comprehension, when you say that they're developing disabilities, Mm -hmm. if you're willing, I would love for you to dive in a little bit to like truly, you know, I've been following your page. I remember one of the most compelling posts that disturbed me, honestly, mm-hmm. was, um, I'm trying to, rem- I don't think you share their names, but you said mm-hmm. this child is four years old mm-hmm. and they look like an infant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would love for you to dive into that because I think it's important to kind of, like you said, be loud about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, it, it is one of the most important aspects of when we're talking about institutionalized care isn't it for these kids. It's because of this. Uh, we call it, well, there's a lot of different, different things about this, but, um, there's a concept or an idea called institutionalized autism. And so Mm -hmm. uh, this is like widely known and widely talked about with people who work in orphan care, um, around the world. And it's the, the concept that these children aren't receiving the natural, like the natural indicators for development, um, living in these institutions. So these like natural things that we just do in a family setting um, without even really thinking about it aren't happening for these children. And therefore they are having these severe developmental delays, which are then turning into disabilities as they age. Um, So like, for example, for the child that you referenced from my post, um, I don't share names and I don't share faces, but I try to share some experiences um, to contextualize this for people so they can understand what the reality of this type of care is. Um, But yeah, she's four years old. Um, A lot of people, whenever I say that she's like sick or something like that, will be like, well, is she teething? Because she's that small. Like they're that, she's that small that people are like, oh, she must be teething, but she's actually four years old. She's got a full mouth. Like she's, she's not teething. Um, She's just been so delayed because she's lived most of her life in an institution. And um, she's physically delayed because the nutritional aspect in, in these institutionalized settings like aren't good. She is not getting the level of nutrition that she should. She also has a lot of trauma this child specifically around eating. And so getting her to eat um, is incredibly difficult. And uh, so she refuses to eat a lot of the times and that's not uncommon. Um, these kids are also often very dehydrated. They are, do not get the amount of water that they're supposed to have. And all of these things kind of compound on the physical sense 
to um, like almost all of the children are like below average or where they should be when it comes to like their growth, um, their physical development. They're, they're shorter, they're smaller, they're lighter than they should be, um, just like medically speaking. And then when we talk about developmental, so I work, one of the groups that I work with are, is the, the infant room. So these children are anywhere from zero to about 16, 18 months old. And uh, when you think about like a child, a baby in a family, there's always con this constant interaction. There's this, there's eye contact, they're speaking to them, they're watching your mouth move, they're responding, they're asking to be responded to. Uh, and they learn these communication uh, methods that uh, just naturally, and we don't like think necessarily that we're teaching the kids these things. It's just how we interact with kids naturally. And so they're naturally developing it. But even things like putting their hands up so that uh, to be picked up, like I'm raising my arms, indicating to the person who's in front of me that I want to be picked up. That is a skill that these kids don't learn because they, if they were to try that, they would not be picked up. So like they don't learn that as a form of communication. Uh, crying is like the first form of communication for babies, right? Like I need to indicate that I have a need and so I'm going to cry and then someone is going to react to me and respond to that need. In an institution, cries are not responded to the way that they're responded to in a family. Therefore, that, that child has their first form of communication cut off, which then domino effects. And these kids often are like, will be nonverbal long beyond um, what would be normal or average because all of their forms of communication have been rejected from infancy. And so we're talking, you know, these kids that come in and many of them do at a very young age have kind of these fundamental developmental stages skipped or rejected. Uh, and those those things, those early stages of development will compound over time and, and just develop into these uh, different delays and disabilities um, as they age. And so we see a lot of these kids that have characteristics that we would categorize as autistic. And uh, I, it is believed that um, those characteristics aren't necessarily something that they were born with or genetic, but something that was developed as their brain and physical um, developments were delayed, and therefore, they like that's where they're at in their developmental process. Uh, the good news in all of this, I know that sounds like super heavy, and you're like, we're talking like, like, little babies. So heartbreaking. The good news in this is that like we now know about neuroplasticity. So we know that like the brain can heal and that we can like remedy a lot of these things with proper intervention. Uh, children are like very, very um, like their brains are so plastic that, you know, means that they're very impressionable as a kid, right? There are a lot of things are developed then, but a lot of things can also be healed. A lot of trauma can be healed. Like there is hope in that. And so that's a big part of what I am hoping to accomplish on a very, very, very small scale with the kids that I interact with is trying to positively reinforce some of their development uh, so that they have maybe less challenges as they continue to age living in an institution. Uh, and like the other hope in that is that, you know, if these kids eventually do get placed in a family, whether through foster care, reunification or adoption, 
there is the op- like the opportunity to heal from some of these traumas, some of these delays mm-hmm. that they've had. And I've seen that. I've seen I know many kids who have gotten adopted since I've been here and I now see those kids in families and they're they're thriving. You know, they're they're maybe not completely caught up to where their peers are um, developmentally or educationally, but um, they're healing. And so mm-hmm. we do see that hope. We see that hope for these children. Uh, it's just on such a small scale and, and moving so slowly um, that it's hard to remember that that's hope. Uh, but but we have to hold on to something um, to keep us keep us going, keep knowing that it can do better and we can do better. Uh, but yeah, it's it's incredibly um, it's incredibly traumatizing to a child's developmental, physical, um, mental, emotional, all the ways that they develop as children uh, to grow up in an institution. Even if like, even if we don't say that there's like abuse or anything like that, even if we just take that out of the equation, that lack of care and attention and um, uh, intentionality in the way that they're raised, the, the lack of love from, you know, lack of attachment to an adult, that alone causes issues. Um, and then you add the commonality behind abuse and neglect in these institutions. And it's really just a recipe for a disaster, but we're working hard to, to bring change. Yeah. So speaking of bringing change and like, obviously, like I said, that's, it's heartbreaking to hear, but I also think, um, I think that it's kind of sometimes human nature too. If it's, if it's too painful to absorb, we kind of just leave it sometimes Mm -hmm. and I think that's something you do really well is not you dive in you advocate you're you're loud about it and you know as we kind of hear these difficult things that are happening to these children what can we do right because I think you know they do need resources like you said like money but a lot of what you say is you know people need to know Mm -hmm. know about what's going on so what can we do as listeners you know how can we engage with your content like what can we do to help what is most needed right now? Yeah. Well, like I said, the issue is so complex and multifaceted that there's like a million and one ways <laughs> that people yeah. can get plugged into serving vulnerable children uh, here in Ukraine and, and, you know, in your own community. But yeah, it is something I say a lot, like on my platform and, and just in general is I am trying to steal people's ignorance a little bit. Because there is so much brokenness um, in this world that we just don't know about. And sometimes it is just like, oh, well, you don't know what you don't know. Um, But once you know it, you then are making an active decision of whether you're going to look away. Okay. So by my, like, that's the reason that I do what I do um, through my social media platforms is because I'm trying to steal people's ignorance about this a little bit because I do believe that it is society's responsibility to care for the most vulnerable and the most vulnerable in the world are children. Um, You know, the most vulnerable are, we're our most vulnerable at the beginning of our life and the end of our life, right? Children and the elderly, like, and if we don't care for them, uh, then we're not doing it right. Whether we're Christian, whether we believe scripture or not, just as society, if we are not caring for our most vulnerable, like that's on us. And so trying to steal people's ignorance a little bit. And with that, I drawing attention to the crisis is like step one, right? So it's like, hey, let's bring awareness because awareness then activates people to take action. 
So I'm going to say this also in the context of Christianity. So like I was saying earlier, um, one of the issues that I had when I was young with faith was that everyone was just telling me to pray about something. We weren't doing anything. And that still continues to frustrate me um, about the organized religion around the world is that we often send prayers to something and that is great. I think prayers are incredibly powerful. I think it is one of the most important things that we can do. But I also believe that prayer, if we're really like praying to God within ourselves and our spirit, and we're really wrestling with these concepts that we're praying about, it is supposed to lead to action. Like prayer within us, like if I say I'm going to pray about something, like like that is me wrestling with a concept that is then compelling action. And, yeah. and that's what I believe. So then, so I don't, when someone says that they're going to pray for me, like I, I take that serious. I'm like, thank you. Because if you're really praying for me, then like you're wrestling with, you're choosing to wrestle with that in your own spirit and with yourself. Um, and I, like, and maybe that'll lead you into some type of action. And again, action is going to look really different for a lot of people, but same thing with awareness. Like we can all watch videos all day long about the horrible things that are happening in the world. But if we don't let those things touch us a little bit, they don't let us, we don't let them impact us a little bit. Um, well, then we're kind of missing the point. We're missing the point yeah. of awareness, right? And so the first thing is drawing awareness. So um, my community on Instagram has been absolutely incredible with helping me spread this message. So liking posts, commenting posts, sharing posts, that's, that is actually doing something. Um, yeah. People might feel like it's small, but every single time one of my posts gets shared, more people are seeing it, more people are following the account, and more awareness is, is happening. And hopefully more awareness leads to more action. And that's just compounded around the world. And I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I live in Europe, I live in Ukraine, but many of my followers are in the United States or Canada or Australia, or I have a really small loyal group of followers in Germany. And so, you know, we're seeing these things compound around the world. And um, to help me specifically in what I'm doing here in Ukraine, sharing the content really is important because the louder we speak about this, um, I really do think when the time comes, when the door opens, we're going to be able to bring change. Um, So that matters. Uh, Financially supporting, like I, I believe that there is enough money in the kingdom of God that we could just do all of these amazing missions, amazing ministries that people have on their heart, but we kind of hold back because we're worried about the finances behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, there's enough money. There's enough, there is enough money in the world. There's enough yeah. money in the church. There's enough money in the kingdom of God, but it does take a lot of it to actually accomplish things. So supporting my ministry here financially, obviously it's going to make an impact. I don't really, I, I don't think I have to spell that out for people of how yeah. money makes things happen and it, and it helps and it is uh, vital to what I do here. Um, but I also just have a lot of faith that there's enough money in the world. So if I reach enough people who have the same heart for me as me and want to, um, see this type of impact happen, then, then they're going to donate and be a part of it. And that's awesome. Um, I also like, and especially, I don't know what it is just here recently. I like, especially want to help people get activated in their own community and serving vulnerable children that are directly around them. Uh, so a lot of people immediately think that means that you then have to adopt or be a foster parent, but there are so many ways that we can just in our everyday life, just with our everyday kindness, with our everyday intentionality, start making an impact on kids in our community. Um, So I've been sharing more content um, about that as well, just trying to 
get people activated and start asking those questions. Well, like, what does that system look like in my community? How many kids yeah. do I, are in the foster care system in my county? Uh, how many families do we have? How many kids do we have waiting for adoption? Uh, what type of programs exist for them? What type of systems exist for them? Are there any camps for them? Are there any, you know, after school programs? Do they get lunch paid for? You know, can I go pay for a kid's lunch at school? Like, there's a lot of things. I think if you start asking questions about what exists around you, um, doors will start opening to the way that you can serve kids in, in your own neighborhood, in your own community. Yeah. Well, and I like, I like, I mean, everything that you've said, but I think for sure there is kind of a, I don't know if it's just like that we're naive, but I think a lot of times we think like, that's not happening in my community. Like, but children are not going to advocate for themselves. Right. And so I think you need to actively be seeking out Mm -hmm. how are the children in my area? Like, what can I do? My mom, um, for a time worked as basically kind of a court advocate for a child because a child can't advocate for themselves in court. And so, you know, she spends time with them and, you know, helps them, you know, in a court situation. Uh Um, not, not a lawyer, you know, you don't, you don't act as a lawyer, but you know, she went through training and just does this in the local community and you can do that. Like you don't have to be a social worker. You don't have to be a child psychologist or any of Uh these things so much, like you said, of what children need is kind adult interaction by responsible adults who Uh care for them and want the best for them. And that's something that I truly believe any kind adult can provide. Um, So yeah, I love, I love that you bring attention to that. Um, As we kind of wrap up, if you were to give just kind of like one last piece of advice or kind of call to action, Uh I just love to kind of open it up for you to do that right now. Um, But yeah, take it away. Yeah, I think a lot of people ask me, you know, I I have the conversation a lot, like, how did you end up there? Like, how did you end up doing what you're doing? I love what you're doing. I'd love to do something similar. Um, How do you get started? And I think it really just comes from asking ourselves the question of like, what we're willing to accept about the world and what we're not. Uh, what we're willing to accept about the brokenness of the world, because we can't fix everything. We're never going to be a perfect world. We're never going to be perfect people. Uh, But what are you willing to accept and what are you willing not to accept, right? And out of those things that you're like, I'm not willing to accept that, like that's just not, that's not going to fly with me. Find a way to get involved with that. Find a way to make the world a slightly better place than it was yesterday, because we all have that responsibility. And if you start doing that, then it might lead you into an incredibly beautiful calling. It, it might lead you into having your eyes opened to a part of humanity, a part of yourself that you never knew before. Because as much as I can sit here and talk about the brokenness of the system, the brokenness of this war, the ramifications of that, all the hard, I can, I can equally meet it with the absolutely beautiful, stunning things I've seen about humans and this world. Uh, come through this like the way I've seen people rise up the way I've seen people care the way I've seen people weep with me um, has been absolutely incredible and so uh, it is a responsibility it's 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 a burden uh, to take on a part a piece of the brokenness of the world but it is I don't know like what else are we doing here if not fighting to make it a slightly better place and so I just encourage that's that like I 
I would be, I would die happy if people talked about me in a way that meant like, man, she encouraged me or she activated me or she said something that made me want to make this world a little bit of a better place. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to be this massive thing. We don't all have to be like, you know, we can all work our day jobs and still come home to our families. And, you know, not everyone has to move across the world and be a crazy person like me. Like, I, I know that like the choices I made in my life are not for everyone and not everyone should do that. But there is a responsibility and there is a piece of the puzzle that we all get to hold and we're all responsible for. Uh, so and that takes self-reflection and that takes intentionality and that takes, you know, not just procrastinating and putting it off and saying oh I'll think about that tomorrow I'll think about that next week like think about it right now like what is it what is it that you will not tolerate in this world um there's so many like there's this girl um who I just find so inspiring um her name's Paisley Kate like I can send you her she has an Instagram um we got connected shortly after the war started because she saw what was happening here and wanted to support what I was doing um and she like is on this mission to just spread like a little bit of kindness um Mm -hmm. because she's seen people um she saw enough meanness in her young life she's like nine or ten years old she's super young um but she's seen enough like meanness in the world that she was like man like I can't tolerate that I want to spread a little bit of kindness and so she started this whole like campaign where she sells bracelets um and donates the money to different ministries around the world and just tries to like spread a little kindness she's got merchandise that says be kind on it she like she is what I'm talking about like she is an example for all of us that like you know Mm -hmm. we got to just like open our eyes to what is wrong with the world and take a little bit of responsibility to make that little bit of the world a little bit better um Mm -hmm. and then like you know we might not have orphans one day or we might not have human trafficking one day or everyone might have a place to live or a clean water to drink you know like yeah and I am delusional and arrogant enough to think that we could accomplish that. But those are I the right things to be delusional about, like delusional in quotes. Right. I'm, I'm all for it. Right. Like, I mean, if we're not, if we're not living a little delusionally, then I think we're, we're missing out on a part of life that, yeah. that can be pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. No. And I think everything that you've saying that you have been saying just kind of reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, um, by Audrey Hepburn, who was, you know, our UNICEF queen. And she said, I don't believe in collective guilt, but I do believe in collective responsibility. Yeah. And I think like, I think that is a call to action because I think sometimes we retreat into guilt, which is not productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is something that everyone can do. And I, I do believe that's why we're here. Um, that's how I believe we're meant to operate in the human family Mm-hmm. And you just have done such a beautiful job of calling people to that and kind of empowering them in that. Um, and so for anyone who's not following you, please give yourself a shout out. Tell us where we can find you. Um, and then again, another shout out on the impact that, you know, liking and interacting with your content yeah. can have. I just would invite everyone to to interact with your content and to share it and to help spread awareness. Donate if you can. Um, and yeah, all of those things. So yeah, where can we find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and TikTok as Alina K. So at Alina K, A-L-L-I-N-A-K-A-Y. It's my handle on actually like all things in my life, which is convenient. Uh, But yeah, you can find me there. I post pretty much daily on Instagram. Um, The link in my bio uh, always goes towards a place to donate. Uh, I also highlight several other 
organizations and things that are happening here in Ukraine. Um, so it's not just my work, but you can see kind of a, a, a broad facet of what's going on here um, and try to update on uh, things that are happening in context of the war as well. So um, yeah, coming out, we have a ton of fun. My community online, I swear, is like one of the best that exists because people are so encouraging and so kind. We do get a couple trolls every once in a while, but as soon as one of them shows up, like my community is like fast to shut it down. And so um, I'm really, really thankful. I didn't have this platform, you know, when I moved here, it it was something that grew after the war started and it was something I never knew that I needed in my life um, because this community has really come around me and supported me. And I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. We'd love to have you as a part of it. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So we'll be linking those in the show notes. We'll also be linking that Netflix documentary that mm-hmm. she referenced, which I've seen. And it is, like you said, difficult to watch, but I do think should be required watching at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming so much. and for speaking for and inspiring me. us. And yeah. So for the rest of listeners, thank you for tuning in for another week. Um, I will be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, you can check out any other episodes. Take some time. Go check out Alina's stuff. And I will see you next Tuesday. Signing off.